Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, as always, joining you on this wonderful Thursday. Thank you very much for being with us. We are getting close to the 100 podcast mark for the HR on the Offensive Podcast. We did have a spin-off series of HR Guild podcasts, which we may resurrect, and I'll certainly talk to Aaron about that. But yes, we're getting close to the 100 mark. I think we're on to about 95 now. And for this podcast, I've decided I wanted to do a book review with a friend of mine, fellow Arsenal fan, and somebody that we've already had on the show, Merv Dinham. And Merv previously and I spoke about six shifts in candidate experience. And at the time that we had that conversation, he did say, well, I've got a book coming out soon. And it might be of interest because it's on digital talent. That's the name of the book. It's been written by Merv and his colleague and co-writer, Matt Alder. It's published by Kogan Page and I am going to introduce Merv now because I've just talked about him and not actually said hello yet. So, hey, Merv, you all right? I'm very good, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. It's good to have you on. Now, you are an analyst, writer, social media influencer. First and foremost, how does it feel to be an influencer? You know what I was going to... I was going to you up <laughs> beforehand, so you knew I was going to say this, didn't you? <laughs> well, the first thing is that I work from home. So the one person in the world I'll never be able to influence is in the next room. Uh, and we'll just laugh if she can hear this. It's one of those things. It means that I have a reach through social media. And when I write about things, people comment on them, they see them. And it's when I tweet things from conferences or whatever, it means that it gets some traction. I don't... like. I was once asked, like, there was a school reunion on Zoom last year. People I hadn't seen for a long, long time. So I thought I'd make them laugh by saying I was an influencer. And they said, Do you, oh, does it mean you, 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 you share pictures of yourself laying on a sunbed in Dubai? I said, no, <laughs> but I, tw- I tweet pictures of myself walking around expo halls in Vegas, talking to HR technology vendors, and their faces all drop like... Ugh. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the type of influencer that they obviously envisage. But no, no, I'm really no. delighted that you're here and actually delighted to hear you talk about your book, Digital Talent. So let's do a little bit of a top line about the book, really. Why did you and Matt decide that you wanted to actually write it? I guess this is my first question that I wanted to pose to you. We had a book published in early 1997, 2017, called <laughs> Exceptional Talent. That was our first book. And that really just looked at the way that the attraction, hiring, development, retention of people was changing in that it was all underpinned by tech. We in- introduced the concept of what we call the new talent journey. So that from seeing a vacancy or finding out about a company through to leaving the company, technology underpinned everything that happened. And it was a seamless journey. What I suppose we began to see was that, in fact, a lot of the changes were digital. Processes internally were becoming more and more digital. And there was this requirement to have talent that I suppose digitally aware. We did a bit of research with a couple of organizations in the tech space and looking at how what they offer is changing and what their clients are saying is changing. And we kind of scoped out the fact that actually digital talent, this is what we'd written about in the first book, is almost like intensified. It's a very different experience now. And we started writing. I wrote, I thought, a fantastic chapter about kind of digital skills for a digital world and all that. And then March 2020 happened. 
yeah. when the pandemic happened. And it kind of, we stopped writing. But of course, what we noticed during the year was that, if anything, what the pandemic had done was to bring in this era of accelerated digital transformation. What we were then needing to write about, and we promised the publishers Kogan Page that we would not write the post-COVID playbook, um, was, you know, basically how to attract, hire, develop, retain people, and what those words meant in a digital world, I suppose, in a world of accelerated digital transformation. So it was, I suppose, in some respects, it was lucky because there weren't in-person events. The tech vendors weren't meeting clients in person. So there were a lot of online stuff. There was a lot of research. We got involved in seven or eight kind of research reports, writing for different vendors. So there was a lot of research data out there and we could build this up. And I think that's the book we've written. So it's, if you like, the new digital talent journey. Nice. Nice. And I think it is fascinating, isn't it? That change and good job that you weren't sort of three quarters of the way through writing the book before March 2020 happened, because that would have flipped a lot of what you're saying on its head. So if you only got one chapter in, then you're a fortunate man indeed. So in the book, obviously, you talk about who are responsible for driving an increase in digital. So perhaps we can start there. Could you just give us a bit of an overview, your thoughts from that perspective? What more can employers be doing when it comes to driving an increase in digital talent? In terms of within organisations, I suppose for uh, the kind of people we're writing for and possibly a lot of this audience, I suppose the main areas are HR and talent acquisition and learning and development. So in terms of those people, it's understanding I suppose, for HR in particular, what digital talent is, what does it mean? There is a definition because we did quite a bit of research and I don't want to give too much away because people won't bother to buy the book. But, you know, I suppose if there's six things about digital talent as such, they have intellectual curiosity, which is a, an interesting phrase that comes up time and time again, but they do understand more and want to know more. They want to know, they've got a desire to discover, understand how their roles are evolving. A lot of the people we spoke to, they know that the World Economic Forum five years ago said that 50% of people's jobs would change in the next five years and all of that. They want to learn new skills in real time. So they actually want to take control of their learning effectively. So learn skills in real time as and when they meet challenges. That means they want to access what they need to know as and when they need to know it. And there's something that comes out in the book, and I suppose I've used a lot more. We talk about support, enablement and connection. And I think that the big thing for the digital world is we've talked in the past when it comes to kind of learning performance about management, management and directing. But the modern workforce wants support and enablement. It's not telling them what to do, directing them what to do, telling them about their performance. It's supporting them, enabling them to be able to do their best work. And a lot of that comes with connection, which obviously the last two years has disrupted. But there are ways that most organisations and individuals have found to kind of overcome that. And interesting, there was a piece of research from O.C. Tanner in the US that only 59% of employees that they surveyed thought that their leaders of their business actually knew what they did on a day-to-day basis. Not their leaders didn't know what they did on a day-to-day basis, but the leaders of the business almost seemed disconnected from how the day-to-day roles digitally were changing. So I think that's the kind of aspect that we looked at. So in some respects, it's everybody's responsibility. It's talent acquisition and, and that is marketing, that's employer brand and everything. Being able to reach the right channels and reach out and to represent the business and the opportunity, the work opportunity in the right way. And obviously HR, L&D, to be able to take them on that journey. 
of enablement, development, and, and to each person be able to reach their full potential. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? I had a conversation with one of our colleagues at LACE yesterday, actually, um, at the time of recording, and we talked about authentic leadership and people being their authentic selves and that building that trust and areas like that. And I just wonder... And then we talk, we we want to talk about the cultural elements of that. And can you change culture much if you've got an organisation who the leaders at the top aren't authentic enough? And I wonder if there's something in this with the digital talent agenda as well, i.e. if you've got a leadership that culturally isn't aligned to those that are below them or reporting into them, if they don't believe that you're aligned to them and their needs, then it doesn't create a good culture. And I think there's something in what you've been saying there is this idea of leadership being able to embrace that. Do you think that leaders are better at embracing it as a whole, a digital talent agenda? Now, that's an interesting question. In some respects, I don't know. I'll be honest on that one. It's not something I've written about in the book or, or we no. have. But I think that in some respects, a lot of leaders are, I won't say these things are done for them. They don't have the same digital interaction with the way the business operates. So yeah. it's kind of all of our HR recruitment technology, and, and they're not so involved. There was a piece of research we did during the um, pandemic, which actually is in the book, looking at kind of whether or not how learning tools had performed effectively in a, a period of remote working. And what was interesting there is that nearly all the organizations we surveyed said that the most important thing when investing in learning tech is the employee experience, that it, you know, the employees have a great experience. And then when we asked what role the employee plays in the decision making of what to invest it was it was virtually none about one in five i seem to recall said yes we take that into account when we actually decide which one to purchase or which one to sign sign up for other than that it's budget it's finance it's it what integrates so there is possibly a disconnect there there's something not in the book because it came out after we'd written it but microsoft work trends index last year for the pandemic had a stat where something like 61 or more percent of leaders described themselves as thriving during the pandemic whereas a similar percentage of younger workers describe themselves as struggling during the pandemic work-wise. So I think there is a disconnect and I'm not knocking leadership. There is a chapter, chapter five, leadership in the digital age and the need for greater transparency. And I think that it is slightly different because the people who work for us know how well our organisations are doing. They can see with their own eyes how diverse they are. They feel the impact of decisions that are made. And so I think there is a greater transparency around these things. And it's up to leaders not to set the culture, but I suppose leadership starts, the you know, culture starts at the top. So they definitely have a role to play, yes. Yeah, certainly. Okay, I'm going to kick us on to another question, that's, that's all right. And we've obviously talked about some of the areas uh, previously before we ran the podcast, we we're running this podcast today, that we could maybe pull out of the nuggets on it. And you talk a little bit about internal mobility. So I guess there's a question around how businesses can get better at driving internal mobility. And what do you kind of talk about in the book with regards to this? I know you only want to give a pricey because you want people to buy the book. So just give <laughs> us a bit of a top line on that sort of side from the internal well, internal mobility, if we go back to when I started work, not when you started work, Chris, that's how people's careers pro 
progressed. You know, it used to be a job for life. It was kind of like, you know, you started as a trainee and you worked your way through the organization, getting more responsibility and, 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 and up for promotion at different times. And then we had this big change where suddenly the talent you need is somebody else's talent, not your own. And this great kind of, I won't use the war analogy because it's not, that was nonsense. But it's this kind of other people's talent was the talent you needed, not the talent you'd already invested in. And that's when you got to the stat that I used a few times in the book. I think it was Bursting Research. It was like two thirds of people in the US said that it's easier to find a job with another organization than it is to change jobs within the company they're with. And that kind of thing is like, how do we get to that? So we did do some research with a couple of companies around that. And I think that there are two or three factors. One is cultural. So there are leaders who believe that you progress the business by bringing people in from the outside. Let's get somebody in that's got some different experience. We are looking to do this. Let's get somebody in from an organization who've done that. So there is an element of that. There is this cultural thing whereby managers don't like to lose their best performers. This kind of managers are tend to be rewarded for having high-performing teams, not for producing high-performing teams, but for having them. And therefore, they don't want to lose their best performers. They don't want people to move around the business. And we surveyed some companies who admitted that vacancies that the recruitment team are trying to fill aren't actually shared internally because they don't want other people in the organization to know about them. So I think that, again, it's cultural. It starts from the top. But if we're going to recognize our people, if we're going to support them, then the way to do it is to invest in their development. And it's making that information, that data. And with the advent and increase in talent intelligence platforms, that data is there. And it's just being able to make use of it, which is why I say in the book, and, and I've said in, in, in presentations outside, internal mobility is really a talent acquisition issue. It's not a talent management issue. It's a talent acquisition issue because if you've got a role to fill in the organization, first thing you want to know is who have we got who could do this? And, you know, for years, that hasn't been the first question. The first question is, where can we go and find somebody who's done this already? Yeah. So I think that's the cultural, the investment. And I think because of the last two years where obviously things have been remote and people have been changing jobs differently, there has possibly been a resurgence in thinking, well, who have we got internally who could take that on? Do you think businesses, so this is an interesting, this is a really interesting topic to me because one of the things we're doing some research at the moment in the share HR shared services space around taking those transferable skills. So what are we looking for in a person to operate within our department or these types of skills? Well, those skills exist outside of our function. Do you think there's a bit of myopia for businesses when you're talking about that internal mobility that, well, let's take it as a marketing example. I'm a marketing director and I'm looking to hire marketing people and I work in a large organization. And so what I'm going to look at is marketing people that have certain marketing qualifications and tick certain marketing boxes, or I'm a HR director ticking HR boxes rather than looking at the skills. Do you think organizations are missing a trick by not looking at those transferable skills? Do you see enough from organizations looking across their business and saying, let's focus on the skills rather than can they tick in my instance? the marketing qualifications box. You've just made my point for me there. I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what I was going to say, the example I usually give is a marketing manager because it's a, a yeah. fairly <laughs> straightforward example and an organization needs a new marketing manager. So the brief goes out, find a new marketing manager. Somebody who's worked in a business like ours and has faced the same challenges we face and understands our marketplace. And what we do see now is to do with skills and capabilities. It's this concept of adjacent skills. And Gartner have done a very good model on this. And it's almost like understanding, okay, what is a marketing manager? What do we need them to do? And then look at the kind of skills that would need. 
So there's an example. I can't remember where I saw it. It was a, an IT role. I can't remember the role, so that's not great. And a marketing manager and the overlap of adjacent skills. And some of them are things like social listening. And there are people in the organization who can do that. And I remember going back to my early days as a trainee accountant. It was a firm of about 120, 130 people. And obviously, if you're training professionally, then you couldn't. But a lot of the non-professional people move jobs. And it was kind of, we need another person here. Who have we got? And I remember clearly there was a girl in the filing department who was good at maths at school, but had to leave school at 16 to go out and earn money. And they actually put her on a bookkeeping course. And then she became a junior accountant within the business. We don't do things like that anymore. And so it is, yes, it's hugely important to think if it's a marketing manager, what do we need them to do? What do we need them to have done before? What skills break down those skills and then look at, well, who else has got those skills? Who else might take a completely different view on this? Because if you've always done what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. So if you bring in, you tend to bring in a marketing manager who's done exactly the same kind of job elsewhere that you want them to do. You're going to get a bit of a rehash I'm guessing, of what they've done before. And, well, no, I tried this at the last place. This is what worked kind of thing. So you do need to find a way to, I suppose, move beyond that. But again, that is down to talent intelligence information. It's a talent acquisition team, supported, I suppose, with an HR team that can look broader and can maybe sit down with a senior manager or director and say, look, this is what we want and this is how we're going to go and find it. Perfectly. And just before I move on to the next question, a good example from the HR context there is we're talking to some organisations about what the skills that you're looking for for those kind of operational HR professionals that are maybe taking inquiries and things like that. And one of the things that many people have said is, well, customer services skills. So why don't we look at people who work in customer services departments and see if they'll be able to work to be able to support those kind of cases or those kind of queries that come in from within the business because they're already doing it for people outside of the business with our customers. But I'm going to kick us on to the next question. That's a perfect example, Chris. Yes. I can use it next time. <laughs> Excellent. You can have that one. So you talk about in the book, the talent experience. Can you just give our listeners a bit of an overview as to what you're talking about when you talk about the talent experience? The talent experience. I mean, we talk in the HR, the recruitment world, and, and the, the, I suppose, the analyst commentator influence the world about candidate experience, employee experience, learning experience, these kind of experiences. But actually, the talent experience is the whole thing. And again, there's quite a bit of research out there that shows that for our employees, to them, the employee experience, the candidate experience, whatever it is, is what they experience on a day-to-day basis. It's not something we create like an aura about his great kind of experience we've created. It's what the other person experiences, the employee. And if it's not good, then it's not good. And this shifts. This is the concept of the micro experiences. And on a day-to-day basis, there will be hundreds of experiences and interaction. And it's kind of, how do they feel about them all? And I'll do the good ones outlay the bad ones. I quote the work of Drs. Chip and Dan Heath from the US who look at peak experiences, valley experiences, and how I won't go through it all here because they need to read the book. But the talent experience is everything they experience. It's funny enough, I've seen two virtual conferences recently, and both of them just talk about talent experience. And one was a very recruitment-oriented one, was one was an HR one. So this is, I'm not saying it's the book, but this is seeping through, that it's just the talent experience. And that can be candidate experience, learning experience, what access they have. Because to the employee, it's not a relay race. It's not kind of, wow, interviewing was good. You know, I've got the offer. I, I, I 
I wonder what my onboarding is going to be like. It's not. It's just one seamless experience of an organization and how they interact with you, how they approach you, how they manage your expectations and whether or not they live up to the promise. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't get put in those boxes. I guess that's what you talk about when you talk in the book about the talent journey. It's not just those buckets, that relay race. It's not just I am a candidate. And now, like some sort of butterfly, once I've joined the organization, I morph into this totally different being that is the employee. And then from there, I morph into the next sort of iteration of the human being that I am as I progress through my career. And then when I leave the organization, suddenly I morph into a completely different human being. I'm still the same human being. And that is the thread that weaves through. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, it's cultural. So the example I give is onboarding, because that's, if you like, the first time when effectively responsibility changes. So the kind of experience is very much the recruitment team, the hiring manager or the hiring team. And the first time the baton gets dropped is when an offer is accepted, because onboarding in some organizations is, is, is HR's remit, it's learning and development's remit, it might be the hiring manager's remit, but it tends to be thought of as what we do when somebody starts, as opposed to how we now take them from an interested candidate who's accepted a job to being a fully settled, productive, happy employee. And that's the onboarding phase. It's not, well, we'll wait till they turn up and HR will have something for them on the first day. But organisations, again, we did surveys, we did a focus group and organisations said, oh, we don't really. Once they've accepted it, it goes off to HR to do the legalities and kind of, a, they have a first day where they get to meet a few people and it's like, but what are you doing in between those two? And there was another piece of research I quoted in the book that showed that on that cycle of interview and joining an organization, the two times that candidates felt least engaged with the business was during their first and second interview. And after accepting an offer. And they use the net promoter score for how did you feel about all these different things. And the two lowest points that I said were both the times where they said the information was at its lowest. It wasn't the contact, it wasn't the speed, it was, they were getting no information about what happens next. Yeah, that's the concern, isn't it? And so seeing it as one entire journey, focusing is almost having that, the empathetic view of what's the experience of the individual rather than that silent, siloed different departments and stuff. We are coming towards the end of the pod We've got just a few minutes left and I've got to try and tease out as much as I possibly can in those few minutes. I want to talk a little bit about DE&I and and get your take on how much you talked about it in the book specifically, because I think this is an interesting one, because now that we've post pandemic or as we've transitioned into this world post-pandemic. I think it's interesting how organizations seem to have really focused in on DEI initiatives within their business. And you had the Black Lives Matter movement, which of course happened during the period of the pandemic. And you've got a lot more focus on other areas. So organizations are looking at different types of talent that they could tap into, like neurodiverse talent or disabled talent or, or what have you. How much do you think that sort of increased desire to focus seen on DEI has been helped by digital talent because people can now do interviews from the benefit of sitting at home, for example, within their own environment. Do you think we're going to see much changes moving forward over the coming years in this space? There is a chapter on DEI in the book, so I won't give too much away. People can read it. Again, it's research-based number of interviews. Yes, it is important. It's hugely important. I mean, it always has been, but it wasn't recognized as such. So I suppose that something good has come out of something bad is that organizations now understand this. It's not a badge to wear. It's cultural. It's a way of doing things. I suppose in terms of the future, there's a couple of things that I'm hearing more about that probably aren't in the book because these are quite recent. And one is kind of like collaborative hiring. So it's getting people involved in the hiring decision who might challenge each other's biases. So it may be getting... 
a small number of people from within an organization to all meet the person and then using different pairs of eyes, different thoughts, feel that actually this is what I like about this person. This is what I'm not sure on that one. And rather than just a hiring manager, I, I like you. You can do the job. I know the company you've come from. I know the school you went to. It's got, you know, that I think that something like that is hugely important because it gives people a voice and it also makes them feel they've been treated fairly. And I think that the, I won't comment, as you say, about the neurodiversity and everything, because there's a fantastic book written by Theo Smith about neurodiversity at work. So people should get that and read about it. I think that the remote working, and certainly I've been following a couple of online conferences uh, the last few days. And one of the things that stood out on one of them was uh, they were talking about collaborative hiring, which is why it's top of mind at the moment for me. But also the fact that their talent pool is now global. A lot of their jobs can be done remotely and therefore they now have a global talent pool. Mm -hmm. And rather than advertising a job on a job board with a location, it's going into a, a developer's group and talking about Star Wars to some developers and then building up rapport and, and then saying, by the way, what are you working on? This is, yeah, I work here and we're doing a project around this. And it's that kind of way. Now, this is, I suppose, next generation sourcing. There's no barriers. It's not like, well, if you don't have great Wi-Fi, you won't be able to apply for this job. If you can't put a CV together, you won't be able to apply for this job. And, and it's kind of that glance, oh no, you know, it's kind of like, didn't stay there long enough, didn't stay there long enough. That kind of decision-making, which needs to be taken out. And so I think that, yes, this is a much better time. And I think I go back to, again, as I said, with the leadership thing, everybody can see how diverse their organizations are. They don't need mission statements. They can see. And I think that's what will drive it. Fascinating stuff. Merv, thank you very much for coming on once again. I always love having our chats on, not least because we get a good 10 minutes before we record that we can talk about Arsenal. And yes, if you are listening to us now, Merv and I are both ardent Arsenal fans but we don't talk about that on the actual podcast itself because it's a HR podcast we save that for Arsenal podcasts that we're on but Merv it's been fantastic to have you on as always uh, it's been a pleasure to be here Chris you can find this podcast through any channels that you get your podcasts so we're on Amazon Music we're on Spotify Stitcher SoundCloud you can go to the Lace Partners website we're on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts you can subscribe write us a review if you like make some suggestions as to what you'd like us to talk about we're always open to ideas that we would talk about in the people and the HR space but from me and from Merv, uh, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. All right.